Welcome. I'm Megan Smiley, and this is the Lawyer's Escape Pod. For those of you who've followed the rules, worked really hard to climb the ladder, but are looking around now and thinking, is this it? Is this my life? I hear you. You want more. You want freedom, fulfillment, purpose. But you don't really see how that's going to happen in the traditional work world. You're entrepreneurship curious, but it seems daunting and risky and sort of just unrealistic. In this podcast, I'm going to help you see just how possible it is to build a business and by extension, and really importantly, a life that you'll genuinely enjoy waking up to every morning. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Anne-Marie Rabago. She's the founder and principal of Modern Juris, which provides tools, trainings, and support to help lawyers build financially sustainable businesses designed to serve the latent legal market. Anne-Marie started her legal career at PricewaterhouseCoopers and then launched a solo tax law practice, um, as well as worked at a law school and in nonprofits in the legal incubator space. Um, I wanted to have Anne-Marie on because I admittedly wasn't familiar with legal incubators when she first mentioned it to me, and I thought it was a really good resource to share with you, particularly if you find yourself thinking that you don't hate the practice of law, you just aren't sure about the environments in which you see that being available to you. This is maybe uh, a sort of an approach that um, to solo practice and support for getting into solo practice that you may not be aware of if you're anything like me. Um, so before we hop into the episode, I also wanted to let you know that I just launched my 2024 focus sessions. I, after talking to a lot of you, I wanted to create something that goes deep, um, but it's also digestible and actionable and can help you start off the year or re-engage with the process of changing your career. So it could be that you're wondering whether you should be applying to positions at a smaller firm or in-house or per this week's episode, thinking about a solo practice. Uh, Or maybe you know you're done with law and you just need to stop applying to those jobs and start figuring out what else you would do. Maybe you're thinking about a side hustle and entrepreneurship or grad school or, you know, maybe you're just like, I am in the midst of a deep existential crisis and really need to go back to the drawing board. No shame, I have been there multiple times. So I know that there are a lot of different directions you could go. And the problem is that if you kind of are trying to explore all of these things all at once, you actually make no progress. Um, So this is designed to um, help you take a big goal and break it down into what you really should focus on in the short term. So we'll help you get clear on the contours of that longer term vision But think about which of these concerns and ideas you can safely stop thinking about for now, where you need to be spending your limited time and energy, and also how to tap into your intuition and trust your decision making around this. So there's a link with more details and to sign up in the show notes. So you can click on that if you want to learn more. And for now, uh, we'll hop into the episode with Anne-Marie. 
and Marie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Megan. I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you. So I always like to ask people sort of to start off, what what got you into the law in the first place? (laughs) I guess I generally refer to myself as a little bit of an accidental lawyer. Um, Unlike colleagues and friends in the law, I I didn't grow up wanting to be a lawyer. In fact, I I don't think I really ever considered it. Um, I, I knew some lawyers, mostly they were kind of older white men. Um, and the things that they seemed kind of bored with their careers. Um, <laughs> and honestly, my parents had gone through a very, very contentious divorce during my teenage years. And um, they were not, I would say, fans of, of lawyers and the mm. law and at all. Um, so for me, I had been out of undergraduate for almost 10 years and really just desperately wanted to go back to school to get a graduate degree. And I was living in San Diego, California. It was about 2003. And I was looking around. There's a lot of great schools in San Diego, California. Um, mm. You live there. You, you yes. probably have a sense of that. <laughs> and um, I found a program at, at UC San Diego that would have been a six-year program, um, and I would have gotten a PhD in sociology and gotten a master's degree in that along the way. And my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, uh, came home from work one afternoon, and I'd, I'd, I'd done all the research, and I was super excited. I had found this PhD program, and it was what I wanted to do get a PhD in sociology. And when I shared that with him, he just kind of, he didn't skip a beat. He just said, what, what does a person do with a PhD in sociology? And I said, well, I don't know. I mean, you're an expert and you help people. And he said, lawyers are experts. They help people. What about law school? that can't be six years. It's got to be some lesser time commitment. And so I switched gears, did a little bit of research into what a a law school commitment was. And then I I actually drove back over to Barnes and Noble where I had picked up a GRE prep book already. And I exchanged my GRE prep book for an LSAT prep book. Wow. That's really turning on a dime. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, so it was, yeah, I, I, I consider myself kind of an accidental lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. So given that, did you have any sort of sense of what you were, you know, wanting to, what kind of law you were aiming to practice when you went into law school or were you just kind of like, let's just see what happens? Well, there were two things, uh, that I think kind of resonated with me. One was, you know, back to my parents' really contentious divorce, I think there was a a part of my mind that was in the space of alternative dispute resolution, preventative Mm -hmm. law, ways to keep people and families out of what I had experienced. And so that that was one mindset. And then, you know, as I mentioned, I, I worked for almost, you know, eight years or so before going to law school. And some, a good portion of that time was spent in human resources functions. Mm. And so there was a part of me that was thinking "Mm, employment, labor law um, might be a way to go. 
I spent my first summer between 1L and 2L year volunteering at a wonderful nonprofit in San Diego called the Employee Rights Center. And they did unemployment insurance appeals and uh, wage and hour claims, things where you actually could, they were administrative law. So as a law student, you could actually go in and represent a client. And I got to have that experience firsthand and realize I did not want to work with employees. Mm. <laughs> they, they generally um, have some, some significant emotional challenges going on. Right. Um, and so at that point, I was actually pre-registered in my 2L year for a bunch of employment courses and went back to the registrar's office and you know, unenrolled myself from those courses. And there was a very short list of courses that had open seats available. Uh, and so one of those was federal income tax. And I, it wasn't on my plan, so to speak. But then at the same time, my, at that point, my plan was just kind of, right, right. <laughs> it was gone. Um, but I took federal income tax and I actually, I fell in love with tax law, which is a bizarre thing to say out loud, but it's true. Well, my father is a lifelong tax law, tax lawyer slash tax law professor. So it sounds less weird to me, maybe. <laughs> but, you know, tax people are, it, it's like you're either in or you're out. Like right. people are like, yeah, very much, you know, there's no sort of, oh, it's okay. People are like very into it or want nothing to do with it has been my experience. I, yes, I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so that kind of took you down the road post postgrad. Yeah. So because of wanting to go into tax law, like you said, it's, it's kind of all or nothing. Um, I, after my JD program, I enrolled in an LLM program and uh, went, moved from San Diego to Chicago for a year to get that degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and then was recruited and it's gosh, now it's about 2008 and the handwriting's on the wall that the recession is mm, coming. Right. Um, but I was very fortunate. Nonetheless, I was recruited by PricewaterhouseCoopers to m- go and work for their international tax services division. Um, and my husband and I at that point wanted to return to Dallas, Texas. So I went to work for, for their office in downtown Dallas. And mm. that was, you know, intellectually fascinating work. I, I, I loved the, the rigor of really spending every day kind of immersed in the, the, the internal revenue code and the treasury regulations and trying to figure out uh, what was going on with the clients that we had, which were, you know, multinational fortune yeah. 500, 100 companies. Um, but, you know, this, this is where I also, I turn again yeah. because I, I kind of started to get this sort of nagging feeling where I, you know, back to where we started, I had gone to law school because I wanted to help people. Yeah. And I, I wasn't, I did not have a clear line of sight to the people that I yeah. was helping with the work that I was doing, you know, as an international tax consultant. Um <laughs> I laugh because I just saw a TikTok being like, I wasn't sure about getting up and going to work today, but then I remembered the shareholders. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It just doesn't, yeah. yeah. No, it, yeah. it doesn't doesn't make you want to jump out of bed <laughs> yeah. or do some good in the world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I I realized that having 
having seen the sort of the landscape of tax practice that the the lawyers who helped people generally were working in very niche boutique firms or they were solo practitioners mm-hmm. and at that point in time my, my husband was also ready for for some changes career-wise and we sat down and said well okay we're we're here in dallas texas neither of us is really you know excited to jump out of bed for our jobs and our careers. So um, where were we happy last? You know, where, where could we be? Where would we want to be if we could be anywhere? And we both sort of, you know, jinx, you owe me a Coke said San Diego. So next thing we know, we're selling our house and, uh, and and making the the cross country trek um, back to San Diego. And I still, I, I was a Texas lawyer at that time because the 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 accounting firm you know wants you to be credentialed in whatever credential you can get so they had supported my efforts in becoming barn in texas mm-hmm. um, but i still had to still had to take on that california bar um, in Oof. order to be able to practice in san diego california so i sat for the california bar and passed in i guess november is when they we usually would get results back then i think they still yeah. do November 2009 and pretty much, you know, um, audits, uh, collections, etc. And that work really took a toll on me. It's funny because when when you hear someone talk about being a tax lawyer, you're like, oh, well, you know, they're just dealing with dollars and cents. And uh, and also everyone seems to think that tax law is very black and white, which it is not. Right. Um, right. But it turned out that I, my, my clients were going through real some very significant challenges and anxieties in their lives in being in trouble with a tax agency. And in California, uh, the franchise tax board or FTB is, is almost or more scary than the IRS. And we, we joke. Tell me about it. I mean, not that I've had any problems, but I do have to interact with them. (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The, yeah. California tax agencies are serious business. So they, um, the clients were, were, were experiencing this and what I, guess I have always known about myself, but it hadn't, it had the, it hadn't been tested is that I'm very empathetic. Mm. And so I, what I later came to recognize and know was compassion fatigue um, started to set in and I was burnt out at one point and and got to love Facebook. It, It just reminded me of this the other day with a here are some of your memories. Right. I I ended up getting pneumonia in uh, well, it said it was thirteen years ago exactly, yeah. uh, and I ended up getting pneumonia and I couldn't get rid of it for like months. I couldn't get I, I couldn't get rid of the pneumonia, and yeah. then well, months. It was like two months the pneumonia, but then I had this lingering cough for like six months, and Ugh. I just could my body just couldn't get well. And I, at the same time, I, um, you know, back to getting out of bed <laughs> to yeah. go and do your work. I, I feel physically ill and mentally as well. Like the, mm. the, it, there was, I did not have motivation and drive and yeah. then some, you know, depression kind of started to set in too. And 
I, at that time, then I looked at, okay, so what, what's, what is in my life that might be contributing to this? And it, it was primarily the, the type of work that I was doing, I think. Yeah. And so I started to pivot away from controversy and into tax and business planning. Mm-hmm. I would occasionally take on controversy work, but I was very, very particular about what I, you know, basically let come through the door. And and this is one of the mistakes I feel that I made is that I I wasn't what I what I now call a door lawyer from the standpoint that I didn't take anything and everything that came yeah. through the door. <laughs> but yeah. I I didn't I didn't have a good system in place for determining, you know, the cases and the clients that I, that I could handle best. I hadn't identified an ideal client. I hadn't focused my practice, um, and, and said no frequently enough. Right. Um, and so at that point I pivoted to more planning, um, with, to the exclusion of controversy. And even then I, like, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel that, burst of joy to get out of bed and get and work, do my work. And ultimately I ended up even sort of uh, niching or focusing more specifically on serving just other solo and small firm lawyers Mm. with their tax planning, business planning. And like I said, occasionally some tax controversy and you know, that they were, just perfect client tell for me to work with. Um, and you know, now again, looking back on all of that, that makes a lot of sense for, for where things have gone since that time. Yeah. Um, I, I love lawyers. Uh, there's just, they're, they're, they're like, we're, we are like perfectly imperfect. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, me too. I have, you know, Sasfat, obviously it's, it's the, the people I work with too. You know, it's, it's, it's so interesting because I, this theme of, there are a couple of themes that I, I hear from you that I, I think are, are somewhat common. Um, one is, you know, the desire to help people is often why people get into the law and then they end up places that like, you know, it, they, aren't doing that but then extreme versions of that cannot you know like the public defenders and and all of the nonprofit work and sort of helping people through controversies there's also sort of some ways an overcorrection on that where if you have a big heart that can also be an unsustainable um type of practice um and in this idea that it's not that any of those steps was wrong it's that they all made sense when they made sense and they start to you know, in retrospect, tell a coherent story, but that it's okay if your story has, you know, different steps to it. You know, it doesn't have to be that you're, you just figure it out and that's where you are forever. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I feel like that's one of, well, you might, you might feel this even more than I do with your background. Yeah. You know, I feel like this is one of the things that happens in legal education is that we get this idea in our head that that there's there's one perfect path and one way that we're supposed to do the things that we do and yeah. that we we almost get these blinders on where we we don't realize the world of possibility that's truly open yeah. to us yeah absolutely 
So practice sort of winding down because you decided that sort of chapter was was done. Mm-hmm. How did you move into the next next field? Um, that one I'm quite familiar with. Yes, right. <laughs> and you, yeah. And so, so I don't. Th- nothing here is going to shock you. So, you know, that was after the pneumonia. You know, we're talking. It's probably now a year to no it's more than that oh my goodness it's like three or four years later so so I was I was hopping along pretty happily for a little while but I I realized that I this just basically being a practicing lawyer and handling clients was just not not where not making not making me happy not where I wanted to be and it will it was very difficult to come to terms with that personally, because at that point I had invested, you know, years, uh, blood, sweat, tears, uh, pneumonia. And I had not just, you know, graduated from law school and become a lawyer licensed in two States. I had also built a business. Right. And, um, I recently heard someone say this, actually it might've been while listening to your podcast, you know, essentially I climbed a mountain and I got to the top and realized I didn't want, I didn't want to climb that mountain. Right. Right. (laughs) And there, there's not a lot that's certainly back then. So this is like 2014. There wasn't a lot out there. We were only just sort of starting to have the conversations about well-being and law. Yeah. And Um, I, I felt very alone for starters and I didn't know where I could turn to, to, to really process with anyone, this almost existential crisis that I was feeling I was going through where it, 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 this sounds trite, but you know, if I'm not a lawyer, if I'm not, if I'm not a practicing lawyer, what am I? Who right, am I? Right. Um, a, a lot of my identity was wrapped up in, in where I found myself. And it, I, I, didn't, I didn't really want to walk away from it from, because it, it, there, there was some form of safety that I felt in, in staying sort of in that comfort zone, despite the fact that it was, you know, not actually, but at the time it felt like it was almost killing me. Yeah, um, yeah. And so I really, what I, where I ended up, it's sort of, it's bizarre. I, I, I was just, I, I opened my mind to the idea that I could leave. I could leave yeah. my firm. I could leave the law. <clears throat> I could go do whatever I could, whatever I could find that, you know, would, would give me that spark of, of wanting to get out of bed each day. Yeah. And so I was looking on Indeed and I was looking on Craigslist and I was looking on LinkedIn uh, and I found a ad for a part-time graduate career advisor at one of the three law schools because here I'm still, I'm still in San Diego mm-hmm. and it didn't say which law school and well, it didn't even say three law schools. I think it did say ABA approved law schools. And at that time mm-hmm. there were three. So I knew that. So I'm like, well, which law school could this be? And I actually had networked in the community enough that I knew 
people in each of the career offices at each of the three law schools. And so I started sending emails saying, <laughs> yeah, yeah, is, you know, is, is this your school? And is there is there anyone, you know, is there any, anyone that I could talk to about this opportunity? Sort of trying to network my way into right, the door. Right. Um, and I found out uh, from from California Western, they sort of responded and said, we can't talk to you about the role because it's actually our role. Um, but, you know, here, you check out these resources kind of thing. I was like, okay, well, now I know where it is. And so I ended up applying for that and getting that, that job. And that was part-time and, and just, it, it was, it was an off-ramp. I'm back yep. to <laughs> runways and ramps again. Yep. It was an off-ramp, right? It gave me a, a sort of soft landing to stay law adjacent it was actually kind of yep. what we call it right um yep. but and to and it was a job that you needed to have a law degree for and yep. the experiences that i had had gave me good a good space to be able to to work with law students in career and professional development and it, it was a good soft landing and then I would just say, and you had the good sense to not go get a whole other master's degree. Yes, right. Getting into it. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the master's degree was sort of my off ramp. I was like, ah, just end date in mind. But but yes, it's there is something very appealing about it because it like on paper it really makes sense. You can sort of look around and be like, yeah, like it requires a law degree. It makes sense. I'm not like totally like there's something very. Um, Although it is a move away from practice, I very much identify with that thought process around it being kind of, uh, it still felt like you were in, like in the kind of universe and it was sensible. Yes. Yes. And, you know, it turns out in all of these years since then, there are, there are a number of opportunities all across the country in that kind of space where like they, you really need to have the law degree in order to do the job. Yeah. And, but, but we don't, we don't know about those. <laughs> yeah. Right. Readily available. When I went to work for the state bar of Texas, not to, again, to jump ahead. Uh, we had a, a number of lawyers on staff that weren't practicing law, but they needed to be lawyers to do the job that they did. Whether yeah. it was you know planning CLEs or publishing books or right, doing right. policy work with the legislature for access to justice, just all kinds of of roles that were needed that required the the law degree and and, and the license to really be yeah. able to be effective. Um, but that's not that's not what we see, um, and certainly not as lawyers in in the trenches of practice thinking what are my options. Right. Right. Yeah. So, and how did, how did working there sort of, how did you like that? How did that fit into sort of what you were looking for? Well, what happened that was very fortunate or fortuitous is that uh, California Western had a legal incubator. It was so where, where am I now? I mean, it's 2015. Their legal incubator launched in, in 2012. And it was at that time, uh, the first legal incubator in California. I think it was about the fifth legal incubator in the country in 2012. Yeah. And the, the director of the program was a clinical professor that had decided it was he wanted to retire and move 
from San Diego up to Northern California. And so they started a, a nationwide search uh, to have a, a person come and direct the legal incubator at the law school. And I was already there. Right. And I had only been there for mm, five, four months. So oh. <clears throat> I had worked places where you weren't allowed to apply for another job inside of the company uh, if you had been working there for less than a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was one of the HR policies that I had to actually enforce when I was a recruiter. Right. And uh, so I had to, I went to the Dean of students and, and said, I'm really interested in this and it aligns really very, very well with my experience. Uh, am I allowed to apply for this? Yeah. And she said, absolutely, please do. Um, and then she ended up being on the search committee. And I think again, my, my going to her and, and, and talking to her about it may have actually even helped my, my candidacy without necessarily intentionally (laughs) trying to sway anything. But, um, I ended up being selected, uh, as the next director for, it's called the access to law initiative. And, then and that was how homed or housed at the law school inside of the career and professional development office. So mm. it was, it, uh, frankly, it it just was perfect. It, yeah. it, and it it I I tell people I fell into the legal incubator movement because I I kind of knew that those existed and I knew that that the school that where I was in the career office had one. I told I talked to students that were interested in that path about the program, mm-hmm. but running one that wasn't something I think I had uh, I had I had thought about uh, until the opportunity was suddenly there. Yeah, it, but it's also sort of a testament to just keep putting yourself sort of in situations that seem like they're moving you towards something, even if you can't totally predict you know, what, what opportunities that might open up, um, you know, just being on that path, put you in that, in that position to be there, to take advantage of that offer. Yeah. Very true. And, and I, yeah, I I really, I feel that. And I, I I have done that uh, over and over again in my professional life of, Oh goodness, where I'm, I'm like 28 years past undergrad at this point. Yeah, you know. So I think a lot, a lot of times, and it isn't just lawyers, but there's something that is very, whew, very just ingrained into our fabric as we graduate from law school and become lawyers. But people just tend to get sometimes very stuck in in career. In, in jobs, roles, and careers. Yeah. And I guess I just, I've never felt like I had to be stuck somewhere. I always felt like I, I, I was, I had the power to change my situation. And I, if I opened myself up to that and I put myself out there that I, I could, I could find a next opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know, maybe it makes sense to sort of talk a little bit about what the incubator was and how that's kind of become more of what you do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I would love to. So 
so yeah, so uh, let's let's start with what is a legal incubator. I, I just recently posted on social media. I was I was in a room uh, at luncheon with a hundred lawyers and you know got a chance to say a few words and I asked the the audience, you know, how many of you have ever heard of a legal incubator? And there were about a hundred lawyers in the room and only about four hands went up. And I was like, see, and, and one of them was, is a, is a former legal incubator director. So really there were only, you know, three people in the room who had heard of, of what, of, of these, these types of programs. And I've been doing a lot of research about sort of where the, the movement stands. We, we, for a while, were calling it the legal incubator movement because there was, there was significant growth. For a period of time, unfortunately, it seems that that the pro the number of programs we have across the country has, in the wake of COVID, has retracted. Um, but nonetheless, they are still there, and I think that you know, in in the vein of what I was describing for myself personally, we have learned from mistakes that have been made by some of the programs in terms of funding and, and offerings and things through the years. And I think we're in a stronger position to potentially, you know, come back out with and, and grow this movement again. But the, the legal incubators it were initially born out of the recession that happened back. Yeah. You know, I alluded to it earlier, like 2008, 2009, that time frame. And in, in some of the research I was doing for something recently, I, I found again, and, and the headlines that were coming out from the American Bar Association Journal and just other places where law students were graduating they, from law school, they were passing the bar and there were no lawyer jobs, none. Um, lawyers were taking paralegal jobs, new, newly minted lawyers, and, and probably even a couple of years out, were taking paralegal jobs. Um, if, you, if you wanted to use your law license, at, at one point, it got to the point where you you had to start your own law firm. You had to start your own practice, and and in order to practice law, otherwise, you know, to make money, you were going to go get a, a non non legal job, maybe you know a barista or something, uh, to make money. While you wait, we waited to see what was going to happen with the economy. Law firms weren't growing. They weren't hiring because clients weren't hiring lawyers for things um, unless they absolutely had to. So, you know, some of some of what people hire lawyers to do is is optional. Um, and sometimes it's not. And of course, the, the number of people that represent themselves in legal disputes at this point in time is higher than it's ever been. Um, but we the, the legal incubators the initial ones were started by the law schools, to be honest. And it was, I think at the time of recognition that law schools weren't preparing new lawyers to go into business for themselves. And so while it wasn't something that there was necessarily space for inside of the curriculum of law school, it was something that the, the law school could develop a program to support their alumni postgraduate. Uh, and so most of our programs across the country initially provided lawyers with space for and, and you know, a, pla- a place to re- receive mail, a place to meet with clients, possibly a place to, to sit at a desk and do your work and call your office. 
um, that you know looked different depending on where you were across the country. Um, it we provided lawyers the, the, these new lawyers, and they almost always were sort of in that zero to three or zero to five years since they got became licensed. We provided them with you know training and mentorship and tools to be able to ideally reduce the time that it takes and the cost, true like out-of-pocket cost, of getting yourself up and into business. And we have still to this day a number of national and and sometimes uh, state and sometimes local vendors and organizations that will offer free or very discounted uh, products and services to the lawyers that are in the incubator programs. And that's in part because while the program is, is helping these lawyers get themselves up and into business, there is a dual mission. So there's, there's that, support a new lawyer in starting a law firm. And also most of the programs across the country are encouraging lawyers to serve clients in the modest income space. So your everyday average citizen um, who can't necessarily afford market, you know, $300, $400, an hour lawyers, uh, but don't, are, aren't so, you know, indigent or poor that they qualify for free legal services from our pro bono organizations across the country. Feels like a wide open market too, just from a business mind. You're like, there's a lot of people in that category. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. The, the major overwhelming majority yes. of the population is in yeah. that space. Yeah. Um, you know, the most recent world justice project uh, survey that came out says that like 70, 77% of the population has a legal need that they do not get help with yeah. each year. So yeah. millions and millions of people. Yeah. Um, and yes, you know, the, the, the income spectrum for that varies greatly. Um, but I believe that we can serve that market. Um, and there's a lot of debate about if we can and how we should and, and so forth in, in the legal profession and the, yeah, the industry yeah. at this time all across the country. Um, but to your point, I call it now, in what, with what I'm doing now, um, the latent legal market. And I, I feel like that is, you know, latency is a concept that lawyers certainly understand. Yeah, we, yeah. we learn about it in the context right. of law. But yes, there's not a lot of competition there. Yeah. And so while there's affordability issues, right, there's, there's also just the, the model of how we deliver legal services. And, and I am talking about what um, one professor, um, Bill Henderson, I think he's up in Indiana, he, he writes lots of papers and he talks, he calls it people law, right? So we're talking about consumers. The, the big law firms, they, can ha they, they have the, the big businesses that have all the, the money bags. So we're talking about everyday people. Yeah. Right. And this this truly untapped market potential where if lawyers would open their minds to approaching the delivery of their services to something other than 
okay, you need to give me a $10,000 advance fee deposit. I'll put that in my IOLTA and hold it right. uh, in case you, you disappear on my bill. Um, this, these aren't the words they say exactly, but right, that's right. what we're doing, right? Yeah. Um, and in the meantime, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my work. You're going to pay me, you know, we'll just say $400 an hour. Um, I don't know how many hours it's going to take, but, you know, I'll send you a monthly invoice and, and you can pay that and we'll get through this. I've got your back and, you know, I'm, I'll take care of you now. And, and that sound like some of that sounds good, but, but the money part doesn't sound good at all, right? There are very, there's, I don't, there are very few places in the world where we buy a service or we buy a product under those conditions. And it's, it's, it's untenable. <laughs> and yet it's what we expect our clients to do in the space of, of law and delivering legal services to people. And you know, it isn't actually what's always been done. It's what's always been done as long as any of us have been alive. Um, but there are definitely other ways of doing it. And and I adore the people out there who are being very vocal about things like flat fees and value pricing and um, subscription models and sliding scale models. There's all kinds of different ways to approach the money aspect. Uh, but... It's not something, again, that we're taught. Uh, and there's a lot of, of misinformation out there about it. But we in the incubators do teach lawyers how to do that, how to do the things I'm talking about. Um, and we, we bridge that knowledge gap and, and provide them you know, with a support system to, to kind of experiment, to, to really take an entrepreneurial approach to their, their practice of law. Yeah. I just, you know, I was in that category of people who had never heard of this until you, we had a conversation. And I just think it's so interesting and such a great opportunity for people. You know, I talk to a lot of people who they don't necessarily hate the practice of law. It's just that they hate the package that it inevitably comes with. <laughs> and this just opens the door to so many other opportunities and does, like you say, bridge that gap of, of knowledge. And it can be scary to get into something and have no idea how any of this works or how the, the math would, would add up. Right. Because, uh, you know, I think it, it can be daunting. Um, and I'm curious, so you're now not doing it in the law school space. You're doing it, uh, sort of at the state level, right? Well, I, I did that. Yeah. I'm actually, doing this on my own now, oh, now. to be honest. <laughs> I have, I've so you've back. seen it from so many different angles. I right? have. Yeah. 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 And um, how do people access all any of those angles? Mm, yes. So as I said, I have been doing work to, to get my arms around where we stand and what programs are still, still out there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I went from the, I, I did this at the law school. I then, uh, then the state bar of Texas uh, announced they were going to sponsor a legal incubator. They were the first, that was in 2016. They were the first state bar to come out as a, a legal incubator sponsor. And so I said, hmm, that would be a really exciting project. I, I love to love to build things and I love to fix things um, professionally. So I applied and ended up moving to Austin, Texas to, to launch the legal incubator for the state bar of Texas. 
that program, um, well, the, the law school program at California Western still exists. Um, I actually was just in touch with their director uh, last week. They, they are unusual, I think, to me because they, on a case-by-case basis, will actually even accept uh, California licensed, usually, uh, lawyers who aren't necessarily alums of the law school. Um, that's one of the limitations of the original models was that most of the law schools were really most interested in serving their alumni. So as as the idea started to spread after you know in that recession time, more local bar associations, law libraries, um, state bar associations. Um, here I am now in Denver, Colorado. I, my husband and I like to move around. A lot. I know you get you get around almost I, as much as I do. I know. <laughs> um, our incubator here in Colorado um, is sponsored by the Supreme Court of, mm. the, of Colorado. So lots of different sponsoring entities uh, host these programs. Um, the American Bar Association's uh, Standing Committee on the Delivery of Legal Services has an incubator directory. It has not been updated in a very long time. I've been working on updating it. And actually on my website, on the, on the resources um, tab, you can find what I have at this point determined to be a, a list of, no, of, of programs I know are operating and are, do have uh, cohorts uh, yeah. currently and are you know, potentially bringing on new cohorts. They're, each program is unique and has its own requirements for being able to be part of the program. And it, you know, as I already alluded to, different, different sponsoring entities. Uh, ultimately, while I was working for the State Bar of Texas, awesome, awesome program. It's called the Texas Opportunity and Justice Incubator. Only requirement for that is that uh, you be a Texas lawyer and of course, you your you and your approach to practice need to align usually with the missions of these these programs and entities in terms of what they are trying to achieve and what you're trying to achieve. There needs to be that that has to be symbiotic. Um, but I I left the State Bar of Texas because I saw the potential for for creating this opportunity for lawyers to learn how to start their own practices or build their own, you know, build and scale their own practices in the space. What I'm really passionate about is serving the everyday person, that latent legal market. And so I run an incubator like program. That's what I call it uh, for lawyers all across the country. Um, And I have members in in the the program that are in every time zone across the U S and you know, we have various uh, learning and uh, activities that bring the lawyers together in community, which is a big piece of this. I, I often say if I'd had a legal incubator or a community like the ones that I strive to, to create for lawyers, I might still be a practicing lawyer. Um, yeah. But yeah. I felt like I was on an island um, and these programs didn't, they, they weren't they weren't as prevalent as they are now. At the, at the height of the movement, we had about 80 programs all across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe we have a little more than half of that that have survived COVID. And there are some that are on hiatus. Um, and we'll see because some of what's going on with the economy right now seems very similar 
uh, and law school <laughs> enrollment and graduation, it seemed very similar yeah. <laughs> to, to the perfect storm that um, created these programs in the first place. Right, right. So. Yeah. So um, in terms of, I'm just curious, practice areas for this sort of latent market, do you find whether in the, through the incubators or through your, your work, um, are people making jumps from, you know, what their firm life had been to a totally different practice area? Are they tend to be related? Like how, what kinds of practice areas tend to be best suited for these, this kind of work? Wow. So I am a big proponent of the lawyers in the it, coming into the work that I have done with them, really creating some self-awareness mm-hmm. and trying to understand the lifestyle that they want to lead and then pursue a practice of law that will support that lifestyle. Right. Yeah. I love that. That's like ex- very close to my philosophy. What we've not necessarily practicing, practicing law, but, but asking yourself what works for you rather exactly. than looking external for the answer. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that that's a, a much more difficult exercise for some individuals than others, because some people truly go to law school and, and want to be lawyers so that they can stand up in court as frequently as possible and defend or advocate. Right. And whenever you bring court (laughs) into this scenario, you lose some of your control. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, But when I, to, 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 to really answer your question, the places where there is, you know, the place where there is tremendous need are often the areas where there is court potentially involved family law, Mm -hmm. Um, at this point, landlord-tenant law, mm-hmm. uh, consumer debt. Um, those are areas where there's definitely conflict, there's definitely um, contentiousness, and there's often court. And yeah. so, you know, I think that what I try to encourage people to do is is recognize that that, that is a decision, right? It isn't a default. Um, and you you can decide that that is what you want, and do, you know, and then try to create as much or, and design as much control into the other aspects of your business as you possibly mm-hmm. can um, and or go in a different direction. Right. Like there's definitely need uh, for estate planning. Will. Yeah, um, that's that one came up to be, and small business lawyers. Right. Small the business. Transact, you know, like. Yeah, I'm not. I wouldn't go hi- hire a firm I worked at for <laughs> legal work, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So it's so yeah. all of it is very individual. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. And then also, you know, how many hours? How many hours do you want to work? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, because you can't. You 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 can have a part time law firm, but you're going to have to you know intend make intentional decisions about how you design that um, and and what that looks like in your life. And we have the power to do that. And with a little bit of of knowledge, uh, understanding and, you know, kind of mental work, we can create what, what we want for ourselves. 
but I don't feel like, you know, other than you and some of us out here, you right. know, in this legal incubator space, there's not a lot of people that are, are talking about approaching your career in law um, or, or your career at all that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's fascinating. I was so excited when you told me about this because I think it really is um, such a great resource for people who maybe are in that sort of space of like, I don't necessarily want to walk away from the practice, but I'm not quite sure how to conceive of it other than in the traditional form that we've all been taught. And being a business person is an entirely different set of skills, right? Like it's just... It, uh, once you told me about it, I was like, this seems so obvious. Why? <laughs> but, um, but it's, yeah, I just find it really interesting. And I was so happy to, uh, to, to share your, your knowledge around this with, with my audience. Um, we are running a little late, so I want to start wrapping up, but I would love if you could first tell us sort of, you sort of alluded to it, but sort of specifically what your program is and how people can work with you and find you. Absolutely. Um, and, and thank you, Megan, for this conversation, because yeah, I, I work with lawyers one-on-one uh, -on -one, um, and through my membership program, but I also am still very much in the space of working as with legal incubator programs across the country and trying to help support their efforts. And so everything that we can do in that space to get the word out um, yeah, and, yeah. and do outreach uh, and, and help make lawyers and, and, and institutions and legal leaders aware that, that these programs are out here and, um, and necessary is so helpful. Yeah. I am now uh, the founder and principal of Modern Juris name of my company. Um, we provide tools, training, and support for lawyers to start solo law firms, particularly designed to serve the late legal market. Um, I work with lawyers mostly one-on-one -on -one and, and through my membership program, um, which has a fairly low monthly price tag at this point. It's $24 a month. Cancel any time. It's a subscription, in fact. Um, and uh, other than that, I provide some free trainings and occasionally uh, webinars and, and things that are for sale um, in the space of trying to provide online and on-demand education in this space. And I'm at modernjurist.com and I am on LinkedIn and I, my, my DMs are open, <laughs> as yeah. they say, as yeah. is my email inbox. Um, uh, and my email is available uh, they're on the website and online as well. And as I said, I do have a fairly up-to-date list of legal incubators that I know are going concerns that is on my website in the resources section. Um, so check that out. See if there's something uh, in your neck of the woods. And if not, you know, reach out to me. I'm always up for working to try to pull community uh, interests together to, to create a program like this if there isn't one near you. And um, thank you so much, Megan, for this opportunity. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for coming on and, um, and, and sharing all about this. I, just think it's a, I think it's a really interesting side of, of the industry that um, I, would, I would love to see grow. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Thanks again. Thank you.